Welcome to the Awakening Church podcast. We exist to awaken this generation to new life in Christ. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more, go to awakeningchurch.com. Over the course of this summer, I had a sabbatical, and one of the things that I did was I, I registered for this little online course thing called uh, the Masterclass. Have any of you seen that maybe on Facebook at all? Um, it's an it's a online um, series of the best of the best in different fields of industry just talking about what they do. So like um, Gordon Ramsay does one and he teaches on cooking. And so over the summer, uh, we're watching that and trying to mimic some of it. Um, Steve Martin does one. He talks all about comedy. And so you have like 17 sessions of him just talking about his process. Incredibly fascinating stuff. Uh, you know, even James Patterson does one on writing, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, Martin Scorsese does one on film uh, making. I mean, just they have like 40 or 50 of these incredible elite people. And one of the ones that is near and dear to my heart is um, this one right here. It is the Steph Curry Masterclass. And so one of the things we did over the course of uh, the summers, we did something called Dad Camp with my kids, and we would go and watch a Steph Curry video, then go out to the driveway and work on the skills that Steph taught from shooting to dribbling to defense and all those different things. It was amazing and is amazing because I still have it to be able to watch and learn from the greatest shooter in history uh, of basketball. Now, some of you don't care about basketball, and uh, that hurts my feelings. (laughs) I grew up like basically with a basketball in my crib. My parents, my dad is a basketball junkie. So this is like a big deal to me to have the greatest team and I believe the greatest player of all time. You, okay, well, anyways, uh, in our own city here. Uh, I'm coaching my son's basketball team right now. And it's a lot of fun. And yesterday we had practice and I pulled out my phone because I can have an app on this. And here we got, um, I got, you know, these sixth grade boys, and I'm showing them Steph Curry and teaching them how to shoot a ball. Think about this. Sixth graders now have access to the greatest shooter of all time to learn how to shoot, how to dribble, and how to play the game of basketball. Uh, it no longer is it, you know, just for the elites and those, you know, who have all this, you know, money and resources. It's now like a sixth grader can learn from Steph Curry. It's unbelievable. Now, we're in this series called the Sermon on the Mount, and I would argue that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' master class for life. In fact, it is the author of life teaching a master class on the flourishing, the blessed life. Uh, I love how Dallas Willard in his book, Divine Conspiracy, said it. He said, the really good news for humanity is that Jesus is now taking students in the master class of life. The eternal life that begins with confidence in Jesus is a life in his present kingdom. 
It's not someday later. Now on earth and available to all. So the message of and about him is specifically a gospel for our life now, not just for dying. It is about living now as his apprentice in kingdom living, not just as consumers of his merits. The Beatitudes... As they set up the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll be spending uh, the entire spring in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, if you will, they're almost like the syllabus of Jesus in his master class. I, I think that's the reason we struggle with it, because any of you had a syllabus, um, you ever had syllabus shock, right? <laughs> You're like, oh my goodness, wow. And then he unpacks it throughout the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, what you'll see t- this morning, he actually unpacks it through his life, uh, ministry, and teaching the entire way. And so the Beatitudes are really this beautiful overview. And last week I gave you this overview of the kingdom life, of kingdom living, of what blessed and flourishing is. And so I gave you this chart Uh, talking about the Beatitudes and what it was. And I wanted to just go back to this so that you have the big picture before we move on. Um, We attempted to take these Beatitudes as kind of like one little pieces, you know, like blessed are the poor in spirit. Great, that one's nice. And I like blessed are the meek because I'm kind of gentle and humble. And yet Jesus says, no, these are all part of one whole. Uh, He used a a literary technique or a teaching technique called an inclusio, where he bookends the Beatitudes. So he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Then you'll notice all the different, uh, throughout the middle is all future tense, and then he'll close or bookend um, with, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. What he's saying is this is one beautiful, lovely, incredible picture of what it means to flourish from the master teacher of life, the creator of life. And so the Beatitudes are both, and you'll see on the left side, the introduction into the gospel. That's how we experience the blessed life is that you first have to recognize your poverty in spirit, that you're spiritually bankrupt to cry out for a Savior, and the process by which one is transformed into living in or leaning into this blessed life here and now. And so you'll see that the first four Beatitudes have to do with your internal world. If you're taking notes, I had you write this down last week. Under internal, just write the word fruit. Or no, no, sorry, root. I have a cold, head's a little cloggy. Write the word root. This is your internal world. This is the process by which God does transformation. We like to deal with the outside and make everything nice on the outside, but never deal with the inside and just kind of shove it under the rug. And God says, no, if you want to experience true transformation, I want to deal with the root and the internal world first. And so he starts with poor in spirit, mourn, meek, and hunger and thirst after righteousness. We talked about that last week. And then he moves to the fruit. This is the external expression of what happens when your internal world is right before God. And so you, uh, mercy, uh, pure in heart, and we're going to talk about those, peacemaker and persecuted. And what I wanted you to see on the far side is this is just the process by which God does his transformational work. You'll notice in 2 Peter it says, his divine power has given you everything you need for a godly life. Friends, followers of Jesus, today in this moment, you're lacking nothing for your life. His power has given you everything you need. And then it says, make every effort. 
on the foundation of his power, you can have the confidence to make every effort to add to your faith goodness, into goodness, gentleness, into gentleness, and it goes on from there. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this, you have been saved by grace. It is a work of God so that no person can boast. Like salvation, the work, is, it's all Jesus, and he did it. And he's going to bring new life into your life, and you are created to do good works. You don't do good works to be saved. You are saved to do good works. The order matters. Romans 12.1 says it this way. In view of God's mercy, in Romans, uh, you, you just study the book of Romans, you'll find that Romans chapter 1 through 11 is all unpacking the beautiful reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his mercy. We're going to talk about mercy today, his mercy for you, that you come to the God of mercy. And then chapter 12 shifts in light of his mercy. This is then is how we live. In view of God's mercy, present your body the most reasonable, most logical thing on the face of the planet is if we come before an all-good, merciful God who's done the work for us, it's to simply submit to his master class of life and present our entire body as a living sacrifice saying, you have it all. At the very bottom, you see, but the fruit of the Spirit. And I just want you to see this because we're tempted to put this in our own effort and just make this connection for you. Um, it says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and I won't go on to the rest because I always forget one. <laughs> and what our temptation is in our life, and we're talking about the external world today, and this is the reason I'm spending a little bit of time here. Our temptation is to focus on the fruit and not deal with the roots. See, it says, a life yielded to the Spirit of God will produce love. A life yielded to the Spirit of God will produce joy. A life yielded to the Spirit of God, the fruit of a life under the control, under the tutelage of the master rabbi Jesus will naturally automatically produce that fruit. So you don't try to be more loving, you just simply lean into Jesus. And this is where the Beatitudes are. In fact, I would say it's, it's better said, not the Beatitudes of Jesus, but the Beatitude. The Beatitude of Jesus, as we lean in and we bring ourselves under the master teacher and say, you get to teach this master class, and we want to learn from you, just like I want to learn from Steph Curry. We want to learn from you because you're the greatest teacher on life because you created life. As we do that, this is what is naturally produced in our life. And so this morning, we're going to shift to the external or the fruit, and I want to talk a little bit about the distinguishing mark of the flourishing. Uh, one way I thought of saying this is the habit of the truly happy. How can you spot a truly blessed person? We have lots of ways that we spot externally blessed people by what they drive, what they wear, what they, you know, kind of have in possession but according to Jesus' teaching, how do we spot those who are truly flourishing? Uh, and he, he's going to give us four th elements that we're going to notice this week and next. We'll begin with the first two. The flourishing, here's how we distinguish the mark or the birthmark of the flourishing. The flourishing give unreserved mercy. Unreserved. 
reserved. See, we tend to give reserved mercy, don't we? We reserve our mercy for those um, we deem worthy of our mercy, those we feel like are deserving of our mercy, those we, you know, haven't been personally affected by, and so we give them mercy, but we reserve our mercy and withhold it from people we don't think deserve it. And yet Jesus says this, the mark of the truly flourishing. He says, blessed, happy, flourishing, fully satisfied are the, help me out. Notice that he didn't qualify it. He said, he didn't tell you to whom you're going to be merciful to. He just said, this is the natural characteristic of the flourishing life. Like, the natural response of one who's flourishing is just, I, I, I just dish out mercy. I just dish it out. I, I just give it to you. Here, you can have it. And, he, and the promise is, for they shall receive mercy. It is the character trait of those who are fully under the tutelage of Jesus. Blessed are those who give mercy when it is personal. Isn't that hard to give mercy when it's personal? When someone's personally impacted you, maybe it's been at work and you have a coworker that has just been mm, at you. Maybe you have a boss that's just been so negative. Maybe you have a spouse that's really hard. That gets really personal, doesn't it? Blessed are those who give mercy when it's painful. Hmm. When, you, when you have someone who ripped you off, when you have things in your life and people in your life that have produced incredible pain. He says, blessed are those who, who give unreserved mercy. Well, what is mercy? we got to know what this means. Mercy is a person who shows compassion and forgiveness, especially towards someone who has offended them. That doesn't jive with our American ideals, does it? We like to give mercy to people who are in need, but not to people who offended us. People who offended us deserve retribution, not mercy. I love how Arthur Pink, theologian, said, he said, this mercy, understanding this word, is something more than a feeling. It not only stirs the heart, but it moves the hand to render help unto those in need for the one who cannot be served from the other. In fact, a good way to understand mercy is compassion in action. This is more than a feeling. This is more than like, oh, I just hope they, you know, do better. Mercy stoops down to meet the need and lift one up. Well, Jesus will go on to explain the, the boundaries of this mercy. And you'll find that as he teaches in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, he'll begin to explain it throughout his sermon. Explanation, well, unreserved mercy, Ryan. Seriously, Jesus couldn't mean that. Well, yes, he did, because he said, love your enemies. Matthew 5, 43, 48, he said, you have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I, sounds pretty reasonable to me. But I tell you, the kingdom life of flourishing, the mark of the blessed. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You could write it this way. Have mercy for your enemies. Enemies don't deserve mercy. I get it. 
but the flourishing understands something that those of us who aren't don't. I want you to notice something. Jesus did not say, like your enemies. Like is a feeling. You cannot control your, your feelings, right? Feelings happen. He said, love. Love is an action. That's the reason Jesus could command it. Love is giving the other person what they need the most when they deserve it the least at great personal cost. Sounds a whole lot like mercy, doesn't it? Compassion in action. It says, you have an enemy. Maybe it's at work. You have an enemy. Maybe it's at school. You have an enemy. Maybe it's in your own house. He says, I am calling you to give unreserved mercy to love them. And when you feel like you can't go any longer, pray for them. 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 He gives an example in his teaching, the unmerciful servant. We don't have time to unpack this text, but let me just give you some of the beginnings of it. If you want to flip there, you can. The unmerciful servant begins in um, Matthew chapter 19, verse 21. Says it's this way. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? How long do I have to give mercy? Up to seven times? Which, by the way, in Jewish culture, that was extravagant. Peter thought he was coming and he was going to be the teacher's pet. Peter thought like he had the best answer. And so he wanted to show off how truly pious he was. Notice Jesus' response. I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times, or some of your translations, 70 times seven. Really, keep forgiving them. Unreserved mercy. And then he tells this parable of a servant who owed a master, it was in debt, for five or ten bags of gold. Just this un, uh, uh, like massive amount of money. And he, the servant pleads for mercy, pleads for mercy. And the master forgives him his entire debt completely. Now, the unmerciful servant goes then, you can gather by his name that we've given him in hindsight, goes to someone who owed him, comparable to what he owed, basically like a hundred bucks. And demands he gets paid and then puts that person into debtor's prison. See, this unpacks and gives us understanding when he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus follows up the story, says, Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant. Think about that. Your debt of a million dollars canceled. And yet you won't cancel the debt of $100 against you, you wicked servant. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailer to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And then he goes on, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sisters from the heart. 
Our ability, friends, our ability to give mercy, our ability to forgive, our ability to love our enemies has to do with our recognition and our understanding of just how much we've been forgiven, just how much mercy we've received, how much that we stood in the place of enemy and opposition to a holy and just God, and he said, forgiven mercy. And when we recognize that, when we understand that, when we come to an awareness of that, there is no offense against us that is too great. And so, the distinguishing mark of the flourishing is one who gives unreserved mercy. Unreserved mercy. Well, the second, then, is the flourishing have an undivided heart heart of integrity, a heart of character. Jesus says it this way. He moves on from blessed are the merciful to blessed are the pure in heart. Above that, you can write clean. A better translation is single-minded in heart. For they shall see God. Blessed are those who have a lifestyle characterized by pleasing God over man. For they shall see God. Jesus pronounces a blessing upon a person, one commentator writes, whose outer manifestation is in harmony with their inner disposition. I would argue for many of you, the dissonance between your inner world and your outer world has caused you such great angst and pain. Because who you are in private is not the same person of who you are in public. And maybe for some, you still have the same high school mentality. If, you, if anybody grew up in church, this was kind of normal. What happened in high school was this, at least for me. At church, I was one person. At high school, I was one person. At home, I was one person. None of those people were the same person. And my internal world was a mess. See, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the blameless. Blessed are those whose internal world matches and reflects their external world, that their motives are right and pure. Well, let's define this word heart, because the way we define it often is our emotional center, our feelings. And that's not what the uh, Jewish writers of that day and the and in Judaism, the way they thought of the word heart. The word heart is the very center of a person's physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual life. It is the core of one's being from which all of life flows. Knowing, and this is why Proverbs 4.23, the, 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 the author of the Proverbs says this, above all else, if you're going to do anything above all else, Guard your heart. Protect your heart. Watch over. Take care of your heart. Why? For everything you do flows from it. All of your life, all of your words, Jesus would say, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Your actions, all of this. This is why this is this external. Because your heart and what's in your heart flows into your everyday life. John Stott said it this way, said, uh, talking about the person pure in heart, this is where their whole life, public and private, is transparent before God and men. Their very heart, including their thoughts and motives, is pure, unmixed with anything devious 
ulterior or base. Hypocrisy and deceit are abhorrent to them. They are without guile. We don't use that word a whole lot in our day, do we? But can you imagine? He says, flourishing, blessed. When you live this life, when you lean into that, when you begin to allow God to do hard work on you, the peace you experience because no longer do you have this dissonance on the inside. He explains it this way in Matthew 6, 19. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasure in heaven, where moth and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in. Now notice this. Here's why. For where your treasure is, there your, help me out, heart will be also. See, we reveal what our treasure is by what we try to protect, we try to secure, and we try to keep. And whatever we treasure in life has our heart, and whatever has our heart, our lives naturally gravitate and flow towards. Our life organizes itself around our heart. He goes on, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye's healthy, or or literally single focus, not double vision, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye's unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And if you don't have the proper vision, you're just wandering. Then he says, no one can serve two masters. Think about this undivided heart, undivided heart, undivided heart, single-mindedness. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot, listen, you cannot serve both God and money. See, wrestling with what is it that we truly treasure? Dallas Willard said it this way, we cannot serve, but serve our treasures We labor all day for them and think about them all night. They fill our dreams, but it is not common for people to think that they can treasure this world and the invisible, not uncommon, sorry, for people to think that they can treasure this world and the invisible kingdom as well, that they can serve both. Perhaps we can make this work for a while, but there will come a time when one must subordinate to the other. We simply cannot have two ultimate goals or points of reference for our actions. That is how life is, and no one escapes it. It says the flourishing, friends. The flourishing are those who give mercy because they recognize they have been given mercy. Like they unreserved because they have a God who's given them unreserved mercy. The flourishing have an undivided heart, have a single-minded affection and devotion. Say, God, I want your way. God, I want your way. He gives us the example of the rich young ruler. Matthew 19, verse 16. Notice how it begins. Again, I encourage you to go back and read this and unpack it. Just then a man came to Jesus and asked, teacher, What good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, he's not asking about the way we think about eternal life. He's asking about the flourishing life. He's asking about how do I enter into this blessed life now and forevermore. And then he asks, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good, God. 
If you want to enter, now notice how he changed it. If you want to enter, if you're reading along in your, your Bible, life. If you just want to enter life, he says, keep the commandments. Well, I've done that my entire life. And then he says, well, what else do I lack? Because there's something I'm lacking. There's something I'm missing. There's something that I feel a dissonance inside that's keeping me from flourishing, and I've tried to do all the right things. And he says, go and sell all your possessions, and then come follow me. And it says this in the text. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. He had a divided heart. He had a divided heart. He says, if you want to enter life that's truly life, this is so important for us to get into Silicon Valley because we have a divided heart. We have the divided heart of success. We have the divided heart of pleasure. We have the divided heart of just our future hopes and dreams. We have a divided heart. He says, if you want to enter life, come to me and say, you have my heart, all of me. Uh, when I was um, in college, I was dating this incredibly beautiful, hot, bombshell blonde named Jenny. And, and she was in Sweden for a year, and I was in Chicago, and, and we're, um, we're dating long distance. And this is before, I mean, we had limited email, let alone uh, anything else. And, and I remember something happened suddenly. As I began to date Jenny, she slowly became the most important thing to me in my entire life. She became my focus, my desire. Uh, and, and the place of Jesus and the place of God began to be pulled down, and the place of Jenny began to be uh, put up. And the Spirit of God, in his just incredible way of what he does in our lives, he just began knocking, hey, hey, hey. You want to listen to me? Hey, I got something for you. And I just felt this like internal tug of war and prompting from God. It's like that I'm supposed to break up with Jenny. This is the love of my life. And for over a month, I wrestled, I argued, and I was miserable. Isn't it so good and gracious of God that he would lead us to a miserable place for our own good? I was miserable. And I, I turned uh, one day, it was actually a Sunday, I was playing drums for my home church in Chicago, and I, I literally just was walking, it was about a mile and a half from uh, my dorms downtown, and I was walking home. And I was yelling, and I was crying out to God like a madman in downtown Chicago, you know? <laughs> I, so I fit right in, right? <laughs> And I'm just like, God, I don't get it. I don't want, I mean, I'm just weird, okay? And I finally said this, God, I give. If you want me to break up with Jenny, I'll do it. And then I heard the still, small voice of the Spirit whisper to me, no, Ryan, actually, I don't. Because if you just break up with her, you're going to replace her with something else. 
See, I wanted to get you to the place where you had an undivided heart, where I have your heart, and where you are willing to do whatever and leave whatever treasure that you're holding because you believe I'm the greatest treasure on the planet and that you and I are together in one. And and he goes like, and so what I want you to learn to do, Ingram, is I want you to learn to keep me as your foremost and keep Jenny See, the flourishing, friends, have an undivided heart. Distinguishing mark, unreserved mercy, undivided heart. I want to close with a little application for us, and I want to address one problem I see. One of the problems I see in our world today, especially in our Western Christianity why is it that those who, huh, those who say, you know, we would kind of outwardly call pure in heart, rarely give mercy? Why is it that the church of Jesus Christ is known more for what we're against than what we're for? Why aren't we known as dispensers of hope and mercy and grace instead of judgment and guilt and condemnation? I think the order Jesus had was pretty intentional. Blessed are the merciful, pure in heart. You ever follow Jesus' ministry, you'll watch something fascinating with those who are far from Jesus. He always led with compassion. He always led with compassion, then followed with clarity. And what we do is we flip it around in the church. we got to make sure everyone knows what's right and clarity. And they never hear about the mercy and grace of Jesus. If you got your Bibles, if you would flip over to Luke chapter 10, I want to pull it all together in one of the most famous parables. We won't spend a lot of time here. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, we know it as the Good Samaritan, but I want you to have the setup and understand it. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Okay, probably not real smart, but cool. Teacher, he asked. Here's our question again. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be flourishing life, to experience the good life? Well, then he he flips it. Jesus is such a good teacher. He flips it back on him. He says, what is written in the law, and how do you read it? Now, this guy had spent time with Jesus. He understood what Jesus was going to say and how he would answer it. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. Utter, undivided devotion, your undivided heart, affection to God. And love your neighbor as yourself, mercy. See, to love your neighbor with mercy is to get inside other people until you can see things with their eyes, think things with their minds, and um, feel things with their feelings. Love your neighbor as you would love to be loved. Give mercy to your neighbor as you would like mercy to be given to you. Forgive your neighbor as you would like to be forgiven and forgiveness given to you. Well, this is problematic, And this was problematic for this man. And so he asked, wanting to justify him, who is my neighbor? Who do I have to give mercy to? 
And then as you can tell, he tells this famous story, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I just want you to notice that there were three men in the parable. There was a Levite, there was a priest, and there was a Samaritan. The first two in the story, everyone would say they had a pure heart. And the Samaritan, based on his birth, his race, everyone would look down upon, call a dog, would be rejected. If you're going to tell a story, the Samaritan would be the villain, and Jesus makes him the hero. See, it is so easy for us to neglect mercy and hide behind self-righteousness and call it purity in heart. When all we've done, as Jesus has said, is clean the exterior, but the inside is dirty. And the call, the call for us is to go, okay, God, you get to have my heart, and when you get my heart, I am going to respond merciful because I'm going to understand and experience you at a depth and a level that I have never experienced. And that is the flourishing life. And I recognize that for some, the reason you've never approached God is you don't think he's going to respond to you with mercy. You don't think he's going to respond to you with grace. You don't think he's going to respond to you with love. You don't approach God because you're afraid he will condemn you the way you condemn you and the way your friends condemned you, the way your parents did, or maybe the way other Christians did. Uh, This sermon title I called Pure Mercy, and you're like, well, Ingram, you haven't even said Pure mercy. And the reason is, is I wanted us to connect pure in heart and mercy together. That you could walk out. What does the flourishing life look like? How can you see it? Pure mercy. Pure mercy. It it is the condition of your heart expressed to others. And you approach the God of pure mercy. Moses, when he asked God, he said, show me your glory. Exodus 33, Exodus 34, God is coming before him, and he's saying, I'm going to shield you. I'm just going to show you my backside. And, and what he reveals in the Old Testament, because we seem to think that there's a different God in the Old Testament. There is not. It's the same God. And what he reveals is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You approach the God of pure mercy. Paul would say it this way. You see it just the right time. You see it just the right time. We celebrate Christmas because God showed up at just the right time. When we were still powerless, that's the poverty of spirit. You have to accept, there's nothing that I can do to save me. Christ died for the ungodly. Wow, That is offensive. The gospel tells us where we are and invites us to a brand new life. 
The God of pure mercy says this, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Theologian William Barclay says this, In Jesus Christ, in the most literal sense, God got inside the skin of human beings. He came as a man. He came seeing things with human eyes, feelings with the human feelings, thinking with the uh, things with human minds. God knows what life is like because God came right inside of life to know you and to extend pure mercy to you and to me. We began with the Dallas Willard quote. We might as well close with the Dallas Willard quote. Yet in the gloom, a light glimmers and glows. We have received an invitation. We are invited to make a pilgrimage into the heart and life of God. The invitation has long been on public record. You can hardly look anywhere across the human seed and not encounter it. It is literally blowing in the wind. A door of welcome seems open to everyone without exception. No person or circumstance other than our own decision can keep us away. Whosoever will come. This is Emmanuel. God with us. God for us. Um, Coaching writers team, it's pretty fun. And uh, one of the things that I've been doing with these young guys... Sorry. (laughs) Is teaching them the proper form to shoot a basketball. Ten toes facing the rim, right foot if you're right handed, a little bit in front, elbow in. You got it on your fingertips, not on your palm, right here. You're going to flick. It's proper form. Now, a lot of the boys have their own form for shooting a basketball. One is left-handed but thinks he shoots it right-handed, and what he does is he takes it from his chest and does this. Another goes up like this, and he gets both hands. I mean, it's just so awkward looking. (laughs) Another takes it above his head. Even a casual observer of the game of basketball would know the way they're shooting is wrong. And as I'm working to teach them how to shoot, you know what I hear? But this just feels natural. Friends, we've been buying into a false lie that if it feels natural, it must be good and right. It can feel natural and be wrong. See, Steph Curry is teaching us the proper way to shoot a basketball. Jesus is teaching us the proper way for the blessed life. And inside, some of you are arguing with me right now because you know that there are changes that need to be made. There's a surrender to your heart that needs to be made. And you're like, it just feels natural. I got news for you. It will not work. And you bring your life, you bring your sexuality, you bring your future hopes and dreams, you bring your relationships, you bring your work, you bring your finances under the lordship of Christ. And you say, have mercy on me, God. I am a sinner. Would you come into my heart and give me a brand new heart? I want an undivided heart. As David said in Psalm 51, give me a clean heart, O God, that I may fear your name. Would you stand and we'll continue in worship?
this morning. For some, you need to cry mercy. Kind of like in the old days when you'd wrestle and you'd, you'd call uncle or mercy. And literally, it's the cry, God save me. God save me. He responds. And as we continue to worship, for some, you need to cry mercy. And it's God, you can have it all. I know it's scary. I know it means adjusting your life. The flourishing life. The mark of those who flourished. I give unresolved, unreserved mercy. And would you come and cry, God, give me, give me an undivided heart.